Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Do you really believe that the best is yet to come in your life? This message will teach you how the pain that you face can actually prepare you for a lifestyle of joy. Enjoy the message. This week we're going to talk about the lie that we take in and we live by, and that is that every day is going to be easy, all right? Uh, When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, sometimes you think, or or you've been led to, that when you say yes to Jesus, that everything's going to be easy, everything's going to be awesome, you know, everything's going to be A-OK, my addiction's going to be gone, uh, my finances are just going to go way up, right? I'm going to be able to go on that dream vacation, right? And the thing is, then you live a couple weeks, a couple months down the road, and like, wait, why, why didn't any of that happen? And then you begin to question the reality of Jesus. Well, here's the cool thing, and then we're going to unpack the hard thing about this. Just because you place your faith and trust in Jesus doesn't mean life's going to be perfect, all right? If someone tells you life is perfect, guess what? They're lying, okay? Jesus never said that every day will be easy. Let me just demonstrate it this way. This is how I had to kind of learn the hard way. Uh, when I went to seminary, that's grad school for people that want to go into ministry, I went to Trinity down in Deerfield, um, just about 20 miles south of here. And when I went into a seminary, uh, I had the opportunity to become a butler, live rent-free in a mansion. And so someone's like, hey, I have this link. You could be a butler. It's in this mansion. Uh, the, the lady that owns it, her husband passed, but she lives in California pretty much all the rest of the year. So this mansion's like all yours. I'm like, sign me up, all right? So I started praying about it, and I, I, I got warm fuzzies in my heart. I was like, God's going to give me this. And so when I went on the phone, uh, I was hired right on the phone. She never even met me. She's like, oh, you sound really nice. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> and so I became a butler right over the phone, never met me. And so I moved into this mansion in Northbrook. It's the largest mansion in Northbrook. It's, it's slightly, I know, feel bad for me. It was slightly smaller than Michael Jordan's house, all right? And so all I had to do was feed the birds, put the seed in the bird feeder, pick up the newspaper, shovel when it snowed, and vacuum a few stairwells. And so this place was immaculate. In fact, uh, this lady, she, was, uh, she got her fame uh, being on Broadway in New York uh, in the first cast of South Pacific. So if you're like a, a drama person, that means a bunch of things, I guess. But, uh, and so she was on the first cast of South Pacific, and her husband was an entrepreneurial, not entrepreneurial guy. Uh, he founded Glendale, Glen, Glendale Heights. I was going to say Glencoe. Glendale Heights, Illinois. So uh, he bought up all the land, sold it off, built houses, and he got rich that way. They got married and became a multi-multi-million, maybe even billionaire family. And so what he wanted to do to make his wife happy is he built her a house that looked like a French castle. So literally had thatched roof in some areas, had the moat, all the stuff. It was tennis courts, pools. In fact, inside it was like a museum. Like they had artifacts from Egypt. I don't know how they got it, but they had artifacts from Egypt from like the pyramid days. Uh, They had rugs on the wall that were worth over $100,000. Even up to my walkway, up to my apartment above the garage, there were real Vincent Van Gogh paintings. Like, this was crazy, all right? And this was all mine, all right? For at least I got to pretend that way. And so, you know, word got out in seminary that I was living in this mansion. And of course, like, I, it dawned on me, I'm probably the only person preparing to be a pastor in this seminary where I'm living in a mansion, all right? So word got out. People wanted to hang out with me, all right? Because they wanted to see this mansion. And so it was pretty popular. And so that's where I was at. But it dawned on me at 23 years old. I was sitting in my apartment alone one night watching some TV. And, you know, the house makes little creaky noises or whatever. I'm like, man, this is the life, though, right? You look out the window and you can see your house way down that way. It's still the same house, right? But the thing is, is that it dawned on me at 23 years old, I had already hit the pinnacle of the home I'd ever live in. There was no way I was going to beat this mansion. It was kind of depressing. It's like I hit the pinnacle at 23? Seriously? Which means 
is all going to be going downhill from here. And oh, it did. Let me explain. It's like the next year, uh, the next school year, uh, Mrs. R, that's what I'll call her, she said, hey, I need you to be a full-time butler. I was like, I can't. I got to go to school. It's like, well, then I need to find another butler. I was like, well, I guess that was cool while it lasted. So I went from the west side of Northbrook to the east side of no Northbrook. Now, here's the big difference between the two. The west side, the, the, the uh, east side of Northbrook, excuse me, is close to the lake, big homes, sprawling acreages. I lived on seven acres. On the west side of Northbrook, it's on the other side of the Tri-State Tollway. So I went from a castle to a bonafide apartment dump right on the other side of the Tri-State Tollway. In fact, whenever I, I, I didn't need to set an alarm clock in this apartment that I moved into because uh, the, the semis would downshift when there was a gridlock in traffic, and I'd just wake up to, boom, 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 it's time to get up. It's about 6 a.m., right? But that was not the worst of it. When I first moved into this apartment on the west side of Northbrook, uh, I got all my stuff in there, and you know when you move, and you can probably resonate with this, you're tired when you get everything in the house, right? You're sitting back, you get everything moved in, or at least the box is moved in, and you're sitting in the seat, you're, you're kind of sweating a little bit, and then you're just like, you know, I could just go for a Pepsi, or I could go for a tea, or whatever, right? And so you're sitting down, and I'm, I'm having a nice cold ice unsweetened tea, because don't put any sugar in it, it ruins it. And so I was drinking this unsweetened iced tea, and I was laying back and looking at the wall, and I saw something move. I saw... A bunch of things move. Hundreds of things move. And I got a little closer look, and to my horror, they were baby cockroaches. How did I know they were baby cockroaches? Because the parents came out to play as well, and they were big. And immediately I was horrified. How could I have gone from a beautiful mansion to this? So I immediately went into my car. I tore off to the nearest grocery store. I went and found the bug spray, the cockroach spray. I saw the, like, how many cans did I need? And I'm like, well, either go big or don't go home. So I'm buying every can that's in this store. And so I brought the cans. I fumigated the place. And they didn't stand a chance. My place smelled like bug spray for the rest of the year. But that's besides the point. But it didn't get any better than this. Listen to this. Is that my apartment started to become uh, newsworthy. I remember one morning I woke up and WGN was there with a the big mast up in the, in the sky. And I'm like, what are they doing a live report for? Well, it's because someone just got murdered, all right? So, like, crime, murders. I'm like, no wonder people aren't visiting me this year. I'm not in a mansion, but I'm in a place that people are actually scared to go to. And I began to think, God, why would you put me here? Seriously. Like, I, I'm, in, I'm in year two. The foreign language part of the study of Scripture is getting really hard. Why would you try to crush me by putting me to the west side? I'm not moving on up. You sent me way on down. Why? And I began to lament a little bit. Like, God, um, <laughs> come on. Like, good life. Come on. A God life, good life, right? No? And I think we can resonate with this. Because when we say yes to Jesus, or when we say, I'm going to be obedient to Jesus... We're told it's the good life, which it is. But yet there's still a tension, and if we say that this tension doesn't exist, we're not being real with reality. The tension of we still have hard things in life. We still have things in our life that are competing with our attention of the goodness of God, these hard things that actually sometimes tell us that God's not good. He is good, but these things, these hardships in life will sometimes speak to us that how could God be good because of this? You know what I'm talking about, right? God is good. Do not mishear me. But the hard things in life test our faith. And so, I want to ask you, what are the hard things you're facing this morning? What are the hard things that are tugging at your heart? For me, it was just I lived in a multi-million dollar mansion, and then I lived in a dump, okay? I guess it could have gotten worse. I could have been the one murdered, I guess. But have you ever felt like you were on the raw end of the stick? 
Like you were just, you, you were owed something and it, it just, you just didn't receive it. What is it? You see, we can hear time and time again that everything's going to be easy in Jesus. And that's not true. Sometimes the best thing in life is grueling. I mean, let's just take food, for instance. The easy food is what you microwave, and it doesn't taste very good, right? The meals that you think about, mm, you think about, you're, it's getting towards lunchtime, it's bad I'm doing this, but you let the meat, right, sit in the refrigerator, in the barbecue, and all the spices overnight, then you put it in, the, listen, I'm looking at some people I know that like, they slow cook and they smoke their meats, right? Then they put it in the smoker and they wait like 5,000 hours, and then for 15 minutes they eat it. Let me tell you this, sometimes, almost all the time, that which is worth it and is good is grueling, it takes a lot of work. So, when we read the Bible cover to cover, I could not find, I'm really, really sorry, that everything in life is going to be easy when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Now, Jesus did say that his burden is light and his yoke is easy, well, that's because he's telling you if you're trying to get to heaven by your own works, that's impossible. The only way you can get to heaven is through Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And guess what? Compared to impossible, that's easy, right? And his, his yoke and burden is easy, but it doesn't mean life is going to be completely easy. It means that we are going to be able to endure and navigate the hard things in life. That's what Jesus means. So he never said that everything in life is going to be easy. Uh, he didn't say that if you follow me, you'll never get sick or you'll always get what you ask for in prayer. And let's pause there. Man, there's some really silly prayer requests we give out to God sometimes, right? You look back like, oh, I'm really glad he didn't answer that. I know, he knew what he was doing, right? It doesn't mean that you're gonna be rich or you're gonna be famous, but rather, this is what Jesus said. It's in John chapter 16. We're gonna be in John chapter 15, 16-ish if you wanna turn there now in your Bibles or in your, in your app. And again, if you're our guest, it's on the screen. John 16, verse 20, let's go here. It says, truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, speaking to the first followers. He says, truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now, depending on where you're at in life, you're gonna, you're gonna focus on one or the other part of this sentence. You may focus on like, oh man, I'm gonna be sorrowful. I'm gonna experience sorrowful uh, situations. I'm gonna be sorry. Uh, the world's gonna rejoice while I'm being sad. Focus on the promise, though. The promise is this. Let's all admit, we're gonna have moments where we're gonna be sorry. We're gonna have moments where we're gonna experience pain, moments that we experience grief. But if you're in Christ, you'll become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to, let's say it together, church, joy. That's a promise. What, you know, whatever's tugging at your heart this morning, what's ever breaking your heart, I want you to know that the un most unfortunate thing is some people are living as if that's their identity and their destiny, and I want to know what your destiny is this morning if you're a child of God, is that your sorrow will turn to joy. In fact, I want to change this up a little bit. I want to make this a main point, and it's a main point that maybe you've heard before and you don't believe it, but I want to say it this morning in context to where it's true and you can believe it, and it's this. If sorrow is going to turn to joy, it means this. The best is yet to come. Now, I know you've heard this before, like the best is yet to come. Like, how do you know, right? Like you get dumped or something like that, or you, get, you, you lose all your finances, or, or you know, you, you go through a divorce. Or, the best is yet to come. You're like, oh, yeah, how do you know, right? Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me your little Hobby Lobby plaque. I'll put it on my wall, all right? 
best is yet to come, right? But the thing is, what we see right here is your sorrow will turn to joy. We're going to explain what that means. But what it means is this. This morning, church, listen. The best really is yet to come. The best really is yet to come in your life, and I believe even in the life of the church. When you place your faith in Christ, the best promise comes into your life. That is forgiveness. Your identity is reclaimed. You see, you were made to have a relationship for God. You were made by God to be for God for his purposes. And when we live apart from God, we begin to live our own purpose, and it might be okay for a bit, but it always leaves us hanging. And so when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that purpose is reclaimed as a child of God. Your purpose is reclaimed. The power of God is reclaimed in your life. And although we may live in a day of difficulty, the Bible says every day we draw near to God. You see, no matter where you're at, whether you don't know where you're at with God or you know you're a follower of Christ, the Bible says it is appointed once for a person to die and then they meet God. It's in that moment I hope that you know Jesus, right? But the thing is, the Bible, in the last book of the Bible called Revelation, says in that day, when we go to meet Jesus or he comes back, because he's coming back, or if it's not in our lifetime, we will go to him when we pass, if you're in Christ. And the Bible describes heaven like this. No more tears. No more pain. No more suffering. No more heartbreak. No more death. All these things are swallowed up. The old has passed away. The new has come. That's why when we say when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, we are people being made new. Being, why? Because we are made new positionally with Christ, and we're going to experience the fullness of new when we go see Christ at the end of time. And so it is at the end of time, we got to understand, no matter what you face in life, if you are in Christ, nothing can take you from the promise what you're going to get in Christ. And indeed, I can tell you with absolute certainty this morning, the best is yet to come. And I believe that this morning, God is going to give you a down payment in certain areas of your life to live life as God has called you as you march toward the best that is yet to come. The reason why is this. If you're in Christ, you are not of this world. You're not of this world. You live for life that is beyond your life. But as you live this life in this world, this temporary world, there will be pain. Why? Well, number one, you're not of this world. But secondly, this world is not heaven. This world is broken. This world is, is filled with heartache and pain. When people live as this, if this world is the only thing that they're going to have, pain should be the reminder that this isn't the only world we have, or this isn't the way it should be, or, or there's something greater out there. Pain is the reminder that everything is not okay. So, if we're to believe that the best is yet to come, we need to write these three things down, and we're going to unpack them. Write these down if you're taking notes. Number one is you will experience pain. Number two is pain is overcome through his power. And number three, your pain is preparation for a lifestyle of joy. Let's go to the first one. You will experience pain. You will experience pain. Chapter 15, verse 18 of the book of John, Jesus continues to speak to his disciples, the first followers. He said, oh, this is really encouraging. This is a motivational talk. You ready for this? Like, you're going to be like, oh, I want to hear this every day. Like, I just, I'm, I'm going to make this my alarm when I wake up. I want these words of Jesus to ring in my ears. You ready? If the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. Well, thanks, Jesus. All right. <laughs> If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Thanks, Jesus. 
Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Thanks, Jesus. What? If they kept my word, they would also keep yours, but they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. You see, your destiny isn't tied to any human being, situation, happening. It's tied to the promise of God that your sorrow will give way to joy, right? But in that, we have to understand we're still going to experience pain. Now, as we notice here, the context is Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go away. And they're not going to like you. The reason why I'm going away is because I'm going to go, die, right, and then be raised from the dead. But they're going to think they're killing me, right? But anyway, that they don't know the grand plan, all right? But uh, they're going to hate you. And little did he, he didn't tell them at this part of the scripture, but all but one of the disciples is going to die for their faith. They're going to experience massive persecution. So he's trying to prepare them that your life eternally way supersedes your experiences in the temporal world. Now, notice here, he begins with the word world. He says, if the world hates you, that word world, by the way, is one of, a favorite word of John the Evangelist, the one who wrote the book of John. And the word world is used 78 times in John's gospel. The original comes from a Greek word that I'll speak to you because it sounds English. It's cosmos, right? And so what, what John is saying and how he's using this word is, is that the ways of the world are diametrically opposed to the ways of Jesus. Uh, this is very clear evidence that our hearts are not naturally bent towards the things of God. They're bent towards ourselves and they're bent towards the things of the world. We have to have revelation. We have to have a download of, of God's ways into our mind for us to understand that our ways apart from Christ, apart from God, are not his ways that he intended us to live. In fact, the way that we see the world, it's what's called a worldview. Each and every one of us has a worldview. We see the world, we interpret it through a grid of beliefs or a grid of understanding, and then we act out in that way. And so some of us, we have a worldview that's quite logical and kind of nice and neat. Some of us may be coming into this room today, and we have a mishmash of different worldviews. It's very illogical. It doesn't make any sense, but we live by it anyway, right? Like, you're like, it's okay. I'm okay with contradictions. And again, I'm not like trying to like diss that. I'm just saying that's, that, that's what it is, right? I don't live by a, uh, the ethic of that anything, is, anything can be okay and be a truth. What I mean by this is today that some hold the worldview that you can't know truth. Uh, that there is a distrust of previous held truths or, or that you need to deconstruct your, 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 your truths so you can build up your own truth. Uh, this postmodern mindset of truth can, is uh, adaptable by the person. Uh, it makes truth an opinion. Uh, it makes truth subjective. And if we were to really be honest, many of us, uh, by default, will start to drift that way because that's the way our culture is drifting. We don't want to make a, a black and white statement, Right? But there are black and white statements, and I, and I live by truth. I don't live by a postmodern idea of truth that it can be anything you want it to be. I quite naturally believe that there are consequences to affirm or not affirm certain truths. Let me give you an example. Let's go extreme, all right? I'm gonna, let's just say I went in Pershing Boulevard, Pershing and 60th, right? Now I saw one of those Kenosha buses just flying down, the, flying down Pershing and 60th. And let's say he was speeding. Let's say he was going 75 miles an hour, and I just stood there. I'm like, all right, guys. I believe when he goes right through me, I'm just going to go whoo, right through it. Why? Because it's the power of the mind, right? I'm going to go right through that bus. And that bus comes, and he just clocks me, right? And, of course, I'm splattered across the pavement. pavement. Okay, I won't get any more gross than that, right? Now, the truth is I'm either going to be annihilated and dead, or I, by God's mercy, maybe I would survive and be mangled at the very least, right? 
The thing is, the truth is, nobody of us all want to stand in front of a bus going 75 miles an hour, or a bus at all, for that matter, right? That's truth. And people are like, well, duh, no one would disagree with that, right? But the thing is, taking an extreme example like that can demonstrate that there really is consequences to affirming or not affirming truth. Truth is out there. And so just because you believe in truth, though, doesn't mean that necessarily your truth is correct. And so what I would say as a follower of Christ is not only do we have to affirm truth, but we have to affirm biblical Jesus truth, okay? Jesus desires us to see the world as he sees it. Uh, he desires us to, to see as his father sees, to see as, as God moves in his initiatives and his ways. And let me tell you this. It will run counterculture in our culture, right? It will be a counterculture to the normal way of thinking and doing things. But this isn't new. Jesus was counterculture. Uh, he, he, the ways and teachings of Jesus uh, got him crucified, okay, uh, because of, from the religious people and also from the governmental people of the Romans. And so we see here in verse 18, the world is going to hate you, but he says, not because, you know, your bad behavior. You know, when, oftentimes when we think of Christians, they're like, ah, oh, you know, they hate Jesus. Okay, what'd we do, right? <laughs> like, what'd they do? You know, because we're used to that, right? We're used to seeing somebody like, you know, they're not really a good example of Christ, right? Uh, they, they say one thing, they do the other the next day. And so maybe while you've been inviting, while you've been taking your invite cards and inviting people to church, someone may have said to you, you know what, I gave up on church because church is so full of hypocrites, right? You've heard it before. The thing is, we're all hypocrites. We all say one thing and do another. Uh, that's not a way of life, but the thing is, we're all uh, fallen people, and so we disappoint people at times. That's not a, that's not a, uh, uh, a card, uh, get out of jail free card of saying just go ahead and do that. Uh, but the thing is, is what we really believe is that what causes damage is when someone is pompous in their faith, like, I believe in Jesus, and then on Monday, they're completely something different, right? And that does do great damage to the cause of Christ, right? The thing is, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Even though I, he would affirm that, that our witness can harm the things of Christ, what he's saying is, they're going to hate you on account of me, what Jesus said. They're going to they're gonna hate him because they count of what Jesus stood for. So this isn't a sociological problem that people have with Jesus. This is a theological problem. The theological problem that Jesus says that he is the only way to God. He's the only way to heaven. Uh, Jesus spoke about the reality of heaven and hell. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus, the ramifications of what Jesus said was, is that, hey, if you are not obeying and, and, and submit yourself uh, that he is the savior of the world, you aren't going to heaven. Now listen, that was not popular then and it's definitely not popular now right and yet that's what jesus was about and that's why people were going to hate his followers because they were black and white with who jesus said he was and some of you are like i don't know how people could say jesus is hate jesus i mean jesus is just a great loving person and that's what for all of us that's what we've reduced jesus to he is a great and loving person he's not just a person he's god and that's where people have a problem and when he's god and that we have to follow him if we're going to obey him and be considered his followers. So, that's why they're going to hate him. Following Jesus is not going to be easy. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. If someone says they're perfect, they're liars, right? Or they're overstating um, how good they are. The thing is, following Jesus is not going to be easy. It's not going to lead you to everyday awesome mountaintop experiences. Following Jesus doesn't mean you'll always get your way or you'll, you'll, you'll get every aspect of your prayer life. But yet, that's what a lot of people say. I'll, I'll follow Jesus if I get X, Y, and Z. 
Now, you might not say it out loud, but you're thinking it when you're praying. Like, do you have this grand deal, that negotiation with Jesus? I'll follow you, uh, or I'll, I'll be obedient in these areas. I haven't been obedient before in my life. If you do X, Y, and Z, I, I'll do it, God. I'll do it. Well, why do people believe that? Well, they believe it for two reasons. Number one is, as human beings, we want comfort. As human beings, we, 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 we want what we want. Again, we're not bending towards God in our minds. We're bending towards ourselves, right? So that's number one. But the second thing is, I believe, especially here in America, in, in the Western world, why this notion of when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, that everything in life is going to be awesome, you're going to get everything you ever ask for. It's a, it's a I would, my mind, I say heresy. It's a false teaching called the prosperity theology. And the prosperity theology is this. It is that, okay, God, if I obey you, you owe me, and I get to declare what you're going to monetarily or possessionally give me, all right? So God, if I do this or whatever, if I read my Bible through the year, I'm going to claim it today that you're going to give me a Mercedes Benz, all right? You see this. Also, if you use Google, you can find examples like this and be appalled, okay? Uh, but the thing is, that's not, that's not what Jesus talked about. He didn't say that somehow if you get God, you can get something else. Listen, we pursue God, we pursue Jesus because he himself is our blessing. He himself is our God. He himself is our greatest good. And if he decides to give us blessings in other areas of our life, then we praise him for it, but we don't worship the things that we're happy about, right? Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, I believe that it is anti-Christian and unholy for any Christian to live with the object of accumulating wealth. Now, notice what he's saying here. He's not saying that if you're wealthy this morning, you're, you're just terribly in sin. He's saying if your object, and you could say, this, the object of accumulating wealth. You could have the object of accumulating wealth whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor or somewhere in between. If your idea of life is to use Jesus to get something else, you have made that something else God, and you've lowered the position of Jesus in your life. So is it wrong, then, to desire to be blessed? Or is it, is it wrong to say that you're blessed if you're obedient? No, it's not. It's context that's the key. James 1.25 says this, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and, and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. What James is saying is, you indeed are blessed when you are obedient to God. He doesn't say what the blessing is, and I'll say what the blessing is all the time. It's God himself. But God may bless you with other things, but he blesses you with things in your life to equip you, to push you forward in the things of making the mission of Jesus go forward. He blessed me with the mansion. And quite frankly, practically speaking, that allowed me to go to seminary. It allowed me to start my school. But he also blessed me with a dump. Now, please, Lord, I'd never want to be in a situation like that again, right? But you know what happened in those two years I lived in that roach-infested dump? He blessed me with being introduced to Allison and beginning to date Allison, which is a great blessing in my life. It got me thinking as I was reminiscing back. It's oftentimes when we are in a moment of pain, we're in a moment of, of just woe is me, God, or a moment of trying to bargain with God, that we see the thing that we don't have, that we're missing out what God is giving. We're missing out on what God has already blessed us with or what God is pushing us forward into. And that's so key. The, the, the prosperity theology says you need to name and claim certain things. What I say is be obedient and just wait for God to move through you and equip you to move forward faster and further than you've ever gone before. You see, the thing is, God does bless obedience. 
The thing is, we need to make sure that our prize is ultimately always God. We need to love the giver of the gifts, not just the gifts. And when we do this, we understand that heaven really does look attracting when God is our ultimate gift. We really can say this morning, the best is yet to come. So we need to understand that we're experiencing pain. The second thing we need to understand is when we're going through pain, you're not left alone just for a future blessing and, and going to heaven or the future blessing in eternity. God gives you his spirit to endure the pain that you're experiencing right now. We see this in 15, chapter 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, so he's, he just dropped a bomb, dropped a nuke on the disciples, on the first followers. Hey, you're going to experience this. You're gonna, it's going to stink. But let me tell you what you're going to get. When the counselor comes, the one who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from synagogues, and in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. So this persecution is going to intensify. And what he's saying is, I'm going to give you the spirit of God to endure this persecution. And we know this persecution ramped up after Jesus uh, died and resurrected and went to heaven. Uh, the disciples were deployed across the world. Uh, and we know by 65 AD, uh, the emperor Nero, the empire, um, he, he hated Christians so bad that he would sometimes capture Christians, sew them up with different uh, animal skins, and then unleash dogs to kill them. Or he'd take Christians, he'd pour wax on them, and then he'd light them as human candles. He was sick. The persecution was unfathomable. And the thing is, praise God that you or I have never experienced that, and I'm not going to be one here today to say, all right, you need to go get your dry foods right now at uh, Bass Pro Shop, and you need to hide in your basement for the next 20 years. It's coming, right? You've heard that before, right? Like, just, you know, hide from the whole world. I'm like, no way. If we know that Jesus is coming back, we know that people are, need Jesus, we need to go out in a blaze of glory and teach, tell people for Jesus, right? That's exactly what our disciples did. They didn't hunker down. They didn't hide. They went out. And if God gave them grace, they lived to 80 years old. Or for some of them, we were in prison at 40 or 50. And when I think of that, listen, my heart's turning a little bit because the question is, if persecution did hit, and don't you mishear me, I'm not thinking it's going to happen, you know, but, but if persecution did hit, would we stand? Will we stand in the faith or will we trade in our persecution for a few decades of comfort? That's a question I ask myself. Because the thing is, what you struggle with there, you begin to think of the things that maybe you value more than God. Pain will come, but the Spirit will come to get you through the pain. You know, pain is, is a great test. It's a great test of the quality and depth of your faith. Pain and trials. For instance, the greatest pain for me was when my parents divorced. My parents divorced while I was in seminary. Uh, and so I didn't, it was weird. I grew up with a nuclear family, right? And then I came home for Christmas one time and I no longer had a family. It was weird. And my, my brother and sister, they saw it all happen live in front of them. And it was just this long, drawn out couple years. And it was, it was hard. It was really, really hard. Um, and, and so that, that just, I just had to deal with that. I had to grow up faster than I thought I would, dealing with my mom's finances, making sure that, you know, she could survive. And um, it, was, it was really hard. And I, I, I remember asking God, God, why? Why? And this why began to manifest in my heart to where one night I woke up and my heart started beating 160 beats per minute like I just got back in Planet Fitness, right? And it was like, but I wasn't. I was dreaming. And, and I woke up and I'm like, what in the world? And I'm like, I felt like I just need to run in my, my room. Like, what's going on? I felt like, honey, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. It's like, well, what's going on? It's like, I don't know. I'm freaking out. So I went to the hospital. And I was freaking out. And it turns out I had a panic attack. Never had a panic attack in my entire life, right? Never. 
yet the pain manifested. But I remember even in the middle of the panic attack, singing to God an old hymn, Great is your faithfulness. Great is your God gives you his spirit to endure the hardest and toughest times. And to quote Craig Rochelle, he says this, a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, So be truly glad there is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Notice that. It's temporary. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. When you face pain, when you face trials, it is in these moments that we're reminded that this world is not all that we have. It's a reminder that indeed the best is yet to come. And it's a reminder that we need strength that is so beyond our own strength. Jesus goes on in chapter 15, verse 26. He says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit called the counselor. Why? Because the spirit testifies to our spirit in the moment that we feel like God has abandoned us, that God is real, and that God's love is real, and that God is sustaining us. The Holy Spirit is called a counselor because it counsels the world that is so far from God that when we're patient with people when they're far from God and we share the love and gospel with words and in actions, people understand that their life is not the sum total of their circumstances, that there's something greater than their life. The Holy Spirit is a counselor. And you know, I think the, the sad thing is, is I believe people are afraid of the Holy Spirit and they don't want to yield their life to the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes, even in the pain, we don't want to let go of control. The key to enduring pain is letting go of control and saying yes to the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment and in all moments. You see, here's the thing. Here's the sad thing. I think many people today, well, I've, I've even thought this. You know, you know, like when you're in hard moments and you just wish that you could physically see Jesus, Right? Or if you're talking to people and they're kind of doubting, and like, if I could just see Jesus right in front of me, like, I, I, I'd be in, right? And the thing is, listen to this. Jesus says in 16.7, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. You see, Jesus must go. Go where? He must go to the cross. He must go to the cross so that you and I have a remedy to our sins. Jesus went to the cross. He resurrected from the dead. He appeared to the 500 witnesses and followers of Christ. And he said, wait here, the spirit, the comforter, he's coming. You see, before Christ walked the earth, only a select few people got the Holy Spirit. But there was a prophecy in the book of Joel, chapter 2, that said there's going to be a time where sons and daughters dream dreams and the spirit of God is going to be poured out on all flesh, young or old, men and women. Not just kings, not just the special people. Everybody who places their faith and trust in Jesus is going to get this Holy Spirit. And they waited, and we see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came in like a rushing wind over people and empowered them to, for boldness, to be relationally and relentless, seeing the mission go forward. But Jesus said, he can't come unless I go, because if he doesn't go, then there's no remedy for our sins because he's not going to go to the cross. You might, it's not that Jesus and the Holy Spirit couldn't minister at the same time, but it's part of God's grand plan through Jesus that he goes to the cross, that he resurrects, he ascends to heaven, he brings the spirit of God to indwell all of you 
to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Now think of this. You know what Jesus just did? He's strategic. He's God. He knows everything. He's powerful, right? What he did was he multiplied his ministry through you. He multiplied his hands and feet to use us, broken us, to be used in miraculous ways. And here's the thing. Back to some of us wanting to, uh, Jesus to physically be in front of us. Sometimes we want Jesus to physically be in front of us so that we can just watch him do ministry. Just watch him. And look what Jesus did. That, Jesus had a lot of crowds, and they watched him, but they never participated in doing the ministry. Jesus says it's better that he goes so that the spirit comes, so that he can indwell you to be his hands and feet, to live naturally supernatural lives, to see the gospel go forward, to see the love manifest, miracles manifest through you so that people can know that we don't live by this world alone, but a kingdom greater than this earth has come. It's come in part, and we're going to see it in full when the best comes. Last thing, and we're going to pray. As your season of pain prepares you for a lifestyle of joy. Jesus says this in 16 verse 20. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow, your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she is in pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Remember the context. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. You're going to be sorrowful. But here's the awesome, awesome promise. I'm going to see you again. I'm going to see you again. And you know what? This promise extends to us. We're going to see him in the physical flesh, in eternity, and worship him forever. And the joy that comes from that is going to so far supersede any joy that you're trying to seek in anything else. And it's yours when you place your faith and trust in him alone. And listen, here's the deal. The blessing of obedience, remember I said that God blesses obedience? I believe the blessing of obedience is this. It's in those moments where you get a down payment of what you're gonna have in full in heaven. Those moments when you have the assurance that God is real. Those moments when you realize and you're made aware of the presence of God. Those moments where you see somebody who is so far from God say yes to Jesus and you begin to see lives transformed. Those are down payments of the fullness that we're going to experience when the best comes. So church, the best is yet to come. No breakup, cancer, bankruptcy, addiction, failure, depression, anxiety, doubt, or desperate feeling you may be feeling this morning can rob you of this, church. Let's embrace it together. The best is yet to come. It's not a tagline. It's not a dry promise. It's not an empty promise. It is real, and it's saturated. Just in the picture of when there's pain in childbirth and then the beauty of a child comes. You may be experiencing the pain, but know what it's going to result in. You will see him again. You will see him again. Until then, he will give you down payments of his glory and his goodness to further his gospel. The best is yet to come. Let's step out and to receive what he has for us. Well, when we impact God's word, we don't want to just be somebody who knows the word. We want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't know Jesus just by knowing things about him. You need to know him personally. Do you have a relationship with Almighty God? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, he created you to have a relationship with him. Did you know that? He 
you were wonderfully and fearfully made in your mother's womb. You were created to know God. The problem is we've sinned. We've done something wrong in our past, in our present, and undoubtedly in our future. And that sin separates us from Almighty God. You see, God requires perfection in heaven. And not one of us, including you, including myself, we're not perfect. And so sin separates us from Almighty God. And what people try to do is they try to get to God by religion. They try to get to God by doing good works or to prove themselves. But none of these things will get us to God. In fact, our righteousness is but filthy rags, is what Scripture says. And so it requires a miraculous, uh, a, a miraculous happening. And that miraculous happening is this. It's not ourselves. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, God came 2,000 years ago as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place to take the punishment of our sin, to take on God's wrath. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He stood in your place, and God saw your sin upon Christ. And Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God came upon Christ. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ died for you. But because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection demands now our response. And the question is this, have you placed your full faith in Jesus Christ? Upon Jesus Christ, what he did for you? The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was risen from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, that means die spiritually, but have everlasting life. Have you personally placed your faith and trust in Jesus? If you're not sure or you know you haven't, right now is the time. You might think like, well, let me get things figured out first. No, let's, today is the day of your salvation, Scripture says. That means that you come as you are, but Christ doesn't leave you as you are. He takes you where he is going. So why don't you just pray with me right now? Why, why don't you consider Jesus? Why don't you place your faith and trust in Jesus right now? Uh, this prayer that I'm about to pray isn't going to save you. It's Christ who's already saved you. I'm just helping you communicate to God. So if you want to place your faith and trust with Jesus right now, will you just pray along with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned. And I realize I need a Savior. So Lord Jesus, will, uh, will you save me? I place my full faith and trust upon you. Thank you for dying on the cross, saving me from my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Help me follow you now. I trust you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, the Bible says you have become a son or daughter of the king. You have been forgiven of your sins. And know this, that once you are held in the grip of God, Nothing can pluck you from his hand. Also know this, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, there's a party in heaven happening right now. Uh, when just one person gives their life to Jesus, the angels rejoice in heaven. As a church, it is our honor to be a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. If you became a Christian today, your next step is baptism. Baptism is when you go public with your faith in Jesus as a symbol of going from an old life into a new one. If you would like to find out more about baptism, all you have to do is go to kenosha.church events. 
Beyond that, if you want to know more about your next steps as a new Christian, all you have to do is go to kenosha.church slash next steps.